If you would, take your Bibles and please turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. Just to give you a recap of what we're doing, on a large scale, you'll notice at the top of your notes that we have five basic tenets that we've run across so far in the Bible. In 59 chapters, we have come up with five basic ways that God is laying a foundation for how to understand the rest of the Bible. Let me run through them briefly. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. What you hold in your hand is actually God revealing himself to you. That's why this is so important. I encourage you, and I don't mean this in a snide manner or or, um, what I want to say, smart aleck or anything like that, but if for some reason you don't have an appreciation for this book, set up an appointment to come talk to me, and let's sit down and let's talk about the Bible. If you're like, I don't like it says this, I'm not very happy about that, well, I don't care about reading it, awesome. You are exactly the reason why I'm here, and I want to talk to you. That would be awesome. So let's do that, okay? Look me up, let me know. My email's in the handout, or come talk to me afterwards, it's great. Number two, God is the eternal, always been, always will be. He is the eternal, sovereign. He is the one who has the right to rule. And he is the creator, and all that he creates is good. And the reason why that is important is because God always operates consistently with who he is. He will never operate in a way that is not a reflection of his being or his attributes. It does not happen. Number three, man, or as you say in Kentucky, wins. Wins are responsible agents held to a moral standard. Now, in the culture we live in, you wouldn't know it. But I'm thankful that the culture doesn't dictate eternity. Eternity will win out over the culture. Every one of us is responsible, and we are all held to a moral standard, and it is the standard by which Yahweh the Creator, God, sets. Number four, sin originates within a person. It didn't come from anywhere else. It came from right here. Therefore, because it comes from right here, and I have a responsibility to deal with it. Remember what God said to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, and you must overcome it. Did he win that, or did he fail? See what I'm saying? It's waiting for you. It's ready to pounce. You have to overcome it. It comes from within. And it's what separates us from God. When we talk about death, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about ceasing to be. We're talking about separation from God. Number five, God declares one righteous by faith alone apart from works. And that is a big point that we're going to see today that God has taken the time in history to unfold to give us a very clear picture of what that is. Let's talk about the first plagues we went through. In fact, if you want to look back at your Bible, just browse through it and see what's going on here. The first one that we dealt with is water turning to blood. Now, I didn't color this, just so you know. But that's the idea. The staff goes into the water immediately. All the water at that time is turned to blood. The next one, the next plague that we looked at on Egypt, Mmm, frogs. Frogs everywhere. Any frog leg connoisseurs? You would have had your fill that day, right? (laughs) Appetizers galore. Frogs everywhere. How about the next one? What's that? 
No? What are they? Look. Look at your Bible. Flies. Lice. Skin eating. Blood sucking. Lots. See, the Bible is not just all rainbows and care bears and things like that. It's brutal. The next one. We know what that is. Look down. Look at your Bible. Go through. Good. There we go. So now we're picking up in chapter 9. Why is all this going on? Why is all these crazy things hitting this place called Egypt? The reason is, is because Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, has the people of Israel captive. And Israel has been distinctly marked as God's people. They are his. He has ownership over them. And because he even calls them his firstborn son, because he deems them as children, as any good parent would do, he will go to whatever lengths possible to set them free from the bondage that they are in. In doing so, he rises up his power against a nation that doesn't just worship another god or a couple of other gods, but has so many gods that you can't even name them all. And each plague that is unleashed is not just to get everybody's attention so they would know who Yahweh is. Remember, Yahweh means the self-existing one. He is in a league of his own, and he is the creator of all things. And unleashing these plagues, he is trying to get the attention of Pharaoh to let him go. Now, immediately you're going to say, I've read this before, and we go through, and doesn't God harden Pharaoh's heart to where he can't do anything but hold on to them. My question is, is have you sat down with a legal pad and documented every instance where this happens? Anybody done that? Anybody done that? It's fun. Okay. It doesn't sound like fun. Well, that's because you don't really love Jesus. That's I'm just kidding. No, it's fun. It's really fun to sit down and to go through and ask all the questions What am I looking at when I'm seeing this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh hardening his own heart? And so what I've done in that second handout that you have, how should we think about Pharaoh's heart being hardened? I haven't given you answers. You can't answer it in a little half sheet, a page and a half, okay? But what I have done is I've documented some things and some basic observations I want you to see that if you will take the time, and it'll take a big length of time, you can work on it, come back, work on it, come back. If you will go through and just research this for yourself, you will unearth all kinds of amazing things. And here's what you find out, is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart has nothing to do with, number one, his inability to respond otherwise. You don't find that. You don't find it in the text at all. And number two, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart has nothing to do with salvation. Not a thing. The hardening of his heart has to do with whether or not the people are set free. Now, hopefully, that's a little bit of butter on the garlic bread to make you guys want to go eat the whole thing, okay? Check it out. Research it. Come talk to me about it. Tell me what you find. I would love to have that conversation. So, because that's going to be its own separate thing, And I trust that you can study that on your own. And if you need help, you just let me know. I don't mind to help you as much as I possibly can. I just won't study it for you. How's that? Otherwise, I'd rob you of the jewels that are sitting there under the surface. But with that in mind, we're going to run across those, and you'll understand why I'm not taking the time to sit down and unfold all of that. So chapter 9, verse 1. 
And we do have a lot of reading today, but I promise you it's going to be good. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field. Note that, which are in the field. If you have a pen, you want to mark that, which are in the field. On the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But Yahweh will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. Now let's stop for a second. Remember, Pharaoh just isn't the ruler of the greatest nation of that time. He is deemed in everyone's eyes that are part of that nation as a manifestation of a God himself. In fact, Pharaoh was deemed not just a god, but the chief of the pantheon of gods, and he was directly ruling, and you dare not cross him. Now imagine, this guy that used to be part of that kingdom, he goes away and he tends herds for 40 years, and then all of a sudden he comes back, poor as dirt, and he's causing an upheaval, he's a rabble-rouser, that's a good word, right? That's a dictionary.com word. Rabble-rouser, and he comes up and he's stirring up all of the work around there, all the people around there, to stop doing their jobs and start thinking about this pipe dream of being set free. And he walks in to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let my people go. What does it say? Look at the end of verse one, that they may what? Okay, now I don't know about you. Anybody ever seen those old movies with the British people? They'll take off the glove by the finger and then they'll go. You haven't insulted me, sir, right? Something like that. This is exactly what has just happened. Does anybody know why? Does anybody know why Moses coming before Pharaoh and making this this request is a to Pharaoh? Anybody know? Because they serve Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, all these people that are building all your stuff, let them go. They got another God to serve. That's not like you'd be mashing on his toes a little bit. I don't think his blood pressure is going to stay at a calm level, do you? So notice this. If you don't do it, The Lord's hand is going to strike your livestock with pestilence that are where? In the what? In the field. Now, keep this in mind because we're going to see some more plagues where more livestock die. And the question is, wait a second, if all the livestock died in chapter 9, how in the world could it get all the rest of them later on? Did all the livestock die in chapter 9 here when this happens? No, just the ones in the field doesn't talk about the ones in the stable or those that are being kept in other places. Just those that are out in the open to be seen. And this isn't the first time we make this distinction, but we'll get to that. But notice, verse 4, Yahweh is going to show my people are going to be cared for and nothing is going to die of theirs. However, everything in the field that you have is going to be put down. Verse 5, the Yahweh set a def- uh, sorry, Yahweh set a definite time saying Tomorrow, the Lord will do this thing in the land. Now, why do we have Moses taking the time to write down a definite time that this will take place? Does anybody know? Well, think about it. If I told you, hey, tomorrow at 3 o'clock, 
we're going to have a blizzard. No, I'm not talking about a Dairy Queen blizzard. We're having a blizzard from 3 o'clock until 6 o'clock. And then it'll be over. If I told you that and it actually happened, what kind of impression does that put on you? You're probably looking to fire me because I got some kind of weird voodoo going on, right? Probably something like that. But does it not heighten the accountability or at least give some credibility that you might want to pay attention? I know what I'm talking about. You see what I'm saying? When somebody is, and this man, this is a life lesson. Woo, we preach on this all day long. When somebody looks at what's going on in your life and you ask advice from them and they tell you what's going to happen next and it does, you start paying attention to that person. Either that or you get real far away from them because you just got convicted of your sin. I'm telling you. Notice that God is heightening the accountability on all fronts here. So at a definite time, tomorrow, Yahweh will do this thing in the land. Verse 6, so Yahweh did this thing. On the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died in the field. Remember that. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Pharaoh sent. Pharaoh had to check it out himself. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Very interesting that Pharaoh wants verification here. This plague right here, is struck against the god Hathor. Now, I didn't put up their high school pictures this time. I just want to do that last week because I want to show you that whenever people sit down and try to conjure gods, all they can do is take two different created things and stick them together and say, this is what it is. We're not necessarily concerned with researching that. But Hathor, Hathor actually has the body of a woman and the head of a cow. She's considered the goddess of joy and of motherhood and of feminine love. And it's believed that her udders gave the milk that makes up the Milky Way galaxy. Sounds like a saucy gal, doesn't it, right? Now, also, uh, another, another god that is attacked here is, is Menavis, I think is how you say it. And literally, this was one of the sacred bulls of Egypt. Well, livestock, dead. God has no problem with it. God has no problem showing that each one of the gods they worship has not only been disarmed, but has been laid low below his power. He will show himself to be the omnipotent one. If you ever get a chance to research gods of Egypt, man, it's weird. Weird beliefs, weird things. And all of it is tied up in some sort of sexual debauchery some way. It is, it is, it is a mess beyond belief. Makes you wonder. So let's move on to verse 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Take yourselves hands full of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. In fact, this word boils here is the exact same one we find used to describe what happened to Job when he had to crack open pottery and scratch the boils. Woo, nasty stuff. So verse 10, so they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it towards the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians, we like those guys, right? The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Now, this is amazing what's going on with them. Because in the first couple of plagues, 
The magicians were able to conjure some sort of imitation, as only Satan can do is imitating what God has already done. Then they came to a point and said, we can't do this. This is something that only God can do. And it's interesting that they single it out as only what God can do. Now they can't even stand before Moses to attempt anything because the boils are so severe. Now boils are, 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 are treacherous in, in one way, but they were covered in them. That means you couldn't even fit your Nikes on your, on your feet because of boils on the bottoms of your feet. Imagine that. Just sore all the time. Now here's what's interesting about this. Normally what you find whenever a plague happens, Pharaoh will come in and go, oh my gosh, this isn't good. Please, please entreat the Lord, beseech the Lord and, and have him draw this back. Do you realize that the boils never go away? They're never rescinded. Yahweh never cures that amongst the Egyptians. They're there and they stay. We have no record of them ever being removed from them. Solid reminders. So it says here, verse 12, And Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh, and say to them, Thus says Yahweh, the Elohim of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Same command as we saw before. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people. Here's the reason. So that you may know, and this is a common phrase, something that they need to know, something they weren't clear on, but it sticks out in the text and we should circle it every time. You may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Yahweh is greater. Yahweh is greater. Remember Pharaoh's first interaction? I don't even know who Yahweh is. Why should I listen to anything he says? And why should I let these people go? I'm a God. I could probably take him. Where's his power now? Verse 15, for if by now, and this is very interesting to show Yahweh's mercy in these plagues. You think, why is he so mad? Look at his mercy here. If by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have then been cut off from the earth. I could have easily just waved my hand and all of you died. That's the extent of his power. But, verse 16, Indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Now stop for a second. Does anybody run into a, a mental wall when you read that? I do. I'll be honest with you. I, run into, I said, God, hold on, man. You're supposed to be merciful and gracious and, and wonderful and beautiful and all these things. And I, and I start leaning over towards the, the, the puppy dogs and flowers kind of idea of God. And I forget about the fact that he sets a standard and he is just. And he will bring all things to justice. I wrestle with that. I wrestle with his ability to be able to decide when he exercises what when he desires to do it. It's okay to struggle with that as a believer in Christ. If we could figure God out, we wouldn't need to be here, right? I think that's important. 
If he was easy to figure out, we would have done one that game and, and, and called ourselves the champions. But that's, that's not the case here. I wrestle with it. But here's what I see. God's exercising his power and using Egypt, get this, using Egypt one way or another to proclaim who he is to the world, to make himself known to the world. That's really what's going on here. Does not negate Pharaoh's personal responsibility in reacting to God. That's why we just can't take these hardening statements as an inability to respond. That's not what they are. The text doesn't allow us to think that way. Look at verse 17. Still, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. See, that's why I'm saying we can't afford to drive down this cul-de-sac that we often have in our minds of hardening. And it just ends here in this idea. Why would God call him out publicly according to his pride in not letting the people go if Pharaoh could do nothing other than not let them go. Does that make sense to everybody? See, yeah, you need to think today. Today's think day. That's why we have coffee out there when you come in. It's the think juice, right? So if you need some think juice, we can get some think juice. But we need to think deep about who God is and not just take this whole, oh yeah, that's that and figure it out. No, no, no. The text doesn't let you. It invites you to go a little bit further and deeper and invites you to think a little bit more about what we're trying to get at here. It's worth the study. So notice, he gives this little segue here after the boils. The idea of the boils here, he hits four gods at one time. Isis, everybody heard of Isis? Probably one of the ones we're more familiar with. Uh, the god over marriage and medicine and magic. Good job here, right? Not, not doing much. The god Sekhmet was a goddess of plagues and healing. Not good here. Sunu was the god of pestilence. It's interesting because in Egypt, Sunu actually means doctor. And so it's the idea that the symbol was actually given. Anytime that, that Sunu's name was written with a symbol, it was actually written as an arrow that was used by the medical professionals in order to lance boils. God has a sense of humor. He does, I promise you. Also, Imhotep, the god of medicine. Uh, what else was he here? Uh, he was actually a human at one time was a pharaoh and ruled during one of the dynasties, and when he passed away, they just deified him even more in the afterlife. So God hits four at the same time with this idea of the boils. Verse 18, Behold, about this time tomorrow, remember, specific time to heighten the accountability, I will send a very heavy hail such as not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. You've never seen anything like what Yahweh is getting to do. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 19, now therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is, that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. Now, being here, I haven't experienced it yet, but anybody here experienced hail? Anybody had to deal with your insurance company after hail? Can you imagine the hail being so big that it killed you when you went out to check on your car? That's a whole different deal, right? You look out in the backyard, it's just a big ball of ice, and you see Fido's legs, and that's it. He's gone. That's the idea. Is everybody waking up this morning? Don't know what I need to do in order to get everybody's attention. Okay. I'm sure we'll find some funny story somewhere to spark everybody. But hail coming down. Now, notice there's a choice given. 
If you've got livestock and your servants, bring them in. Get them out of harm's way. How do you know this is a supernatural thing that's going on here? Don't you think that hail could break through the roof of a house at that time? Probably. If it's enough to kill a person, if it's enough to kill an animal, it's enough to break through your roof. Notice that Yahweh is setting something before them, an opportunity for them to choose safety here, to respond. And this is what we see in verse 20. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared, who feared, reverenced is the idea. The word of Yahweh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky that hail may fall on all of the land of Egypt, on man and on beast and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky and Yahweh sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. This is hail like you've never seen before, right? It's mixed with fire, which is interesting because if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, it automatically conjures a lot of images in your mind about the end times. It says here, uh, let's see here, forgive me, Uh, uh, verse 24. I'm sorry, the end of 23. And Yahweh rained hail on the land of Egypt, verse 24. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe. Now pause for a second. Everybody, if you have the NASB, you see this very severe. Everybody see this? This is a derivative of one of the same words that's used for the idea of hardening the heart. Just to let you know, very severe. It's not just one word that always means hardening. It's different words that are used that mean hardening. This is the idea in describing what the hail is like that's falling upon the earth. Take that and connect it to the study that everyone here will do because everybody's psyched about it, right? Yeah, I like it. All right. Everybody's been drinking their monster energy drinks. It's good to go. So notice, very severe, such as it had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field, shattered every tree of the field. Circle the number 26 there. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, where the sons of Israel were there was no hail. Now here's the problem. If you think back to the map that we saw, and if you've got a map in the back of your book of that place in Egypt, you can look up and you can actually find where Goshen is. And Goshen is actually located in the Delta region there. Now, if you know anything about the weather over there, the climate, what it's supposed to look like, how those things go, in the Delta region, if there's ever a storm, that's where it's supposed to happen. It happens there first. It gets first dibs on all the bad stuff that goes down like that. But notice, Yahweh puts protection over his people. Everything is dying outside everywhere else. Now, imagine yourself an Israelite standing on the border of the land of Goshen, looking into Egypt and everything that is going on around you. You think God is teaching them something at this moment? Very interesting. We often look at it from the Egyptians' perspective. Think about if you were inside the circle, the circle of trust, imagine, right? If you were inside looking out. Amazing. Verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and said to them, first time he says it, I have sinned this time. Pharaoh knows what sin is. Is he accountable? Good googly moogly he is, right? I have sinned this time. Yahweh is the righteous one. 
And I and my people are the wicked ones. Sobriety is a beautiful thing, right? Notice this, verse 28. Make supplication to Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be hail no longer that you may know, there it is again, that the earth is Yahweh's. That he's not just over the Israelites, that he's not just over Egypt and able to super suplex your gods on the mat from the top turnbuckle. It's not just like that. It's the fact that he is over all things. Why? He's the creator of the earth. He owns it. It's his. It's his. And that's what he's trying to get across to them. A hard heart does not readily accept that. Verse 30, but as for you and your servants, now notice Moses' discernment here, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh Elohim. Now he gives us a little editorial note, verse 31 and 32. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. In other words, it was ripe, ready for harvest. Verse 32, but the wheat and the spelt, spelt is a wheat-like crop, uh, were not ruined, for they ripen late. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, and he spread out his hands to Yahweh, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he what? He sinned again. He didn't learn. He was too far gone beyond teaching. His conscience would not accept truth. And he so redirect his life and decisions and motives around its existence, even though it was being amazingly revealed to him. Please tell me that you can identify with this truth somewhere in your life that God at one point had to so get a hold of your attention that you realize it is just ethically, morally, logically wrong for me to continue on in the direction I am going because of the truth he has revealed to me, I cannot help but to be different. It is grave to know the truth and to yet sin against him again. Does everybody see this? He sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. It's not just him. His servants are in on it now too. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as Yahweh had spoken through Moses. Now, I love the name of this goddess that this plague of hail was against. Her name is Nut. I love it. And if she's not known as Nut, then she's known as Mutt. I love that too. You can't get away from the mockery, can you? But this is the goddess over the sky, and she showers all good things upon the Egyptians. Where was she this day? Disarmed, ineffective, unable to help. Moving on, chapter 10. Remember, Pharaoh hardened his hearts, his heart, his servants hardened their hearts. Chapter 10, verse 1. And I apologize, I told you there'd be a lot of reading today, but we're getting to a good point, I promise you. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know 
that you may know that I am Yahweh. What is he talking about doing there in verse 2? What's he talking about? Does the truth just stick with you? Does it? No. Moses, this is meant for your kids. And when your kids have kids, you pass it on. You tell the truth to the next generation so that they will turn it to the next generation. And it will perpetuate. Why? To keep your lines from sin. To think rightly about God. I don't know if you guys remember this. One of the first things I asked of you, in fact, it was the end of my first sermon here that I asked you, get online or ask one of your friends, to you, what is God like? Everybody remember that? You just realized how crazy your friends were, didn't you? And how you might not need to be hanging out with them anymore. Or that God had you hanging out with them so you could do anything, correct their thinking about God, because what you find is, is a lot of thinking about God is not biblical. Unbiblical thinking comes from somewhere. Satan is always teaching. Get this. He is always teaching. He's alive and well in schools, but that's not the only place. He's alive and well in television. He's alive and well in magazines. Oh, they're all dirty. We should burn them all. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to get legalistic, but what I'm saying is, is that people are always learning from somewhere. Notice it is the responsibility of these parents to pass these truths on to their kids. Why? So that their kids will turn around and do the same. So that you have what is called a legacy of who Yahweh is. To recount these events. Look at verse 3. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Now this is an interesting question considering the hardening of heart. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Does everybody see why the hardening of heart just can't be, Pharaoh just can't let him go? Does everybody see why it can't be that? Why would Yahweh ask the question, what's it going to take, Pharaoh, for you to humble yourself and let these people go? Let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 4, for if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow, notice the accountability, I will bring locusts into your territory. They will cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. You won't even be able to see the ground you're walking on because of how much locusts there will be. He says here, they will also eat the rest of what has escaped, what is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses shall be filled, and the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. In other words, it's extraordinary beyond measure. No one's ever seen anything like what I'm going to do. From the day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. I love it. He didn't even wait for Pharaoh's response. He just told him what was up and turned and left. You almost wonder if he dropped the microphone before he walked out of there, right? And it says here, verse 7. Pharaoh's servant said to him, now remember, pause for a second. Go back and look at chapter 10, verse 1, right? I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Look at chapter 9, verse 34. He sinned again, and he hardened his heart and his servants. Now, this question is extremely interesting in verse 7. Pharaoh's servants, pause, didn't we just see them? Do they have soft hearts or hard hearts? 
They're hard hearts, but watch what they ask Pharaoh. They said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may serve Yahweh, their Elohim. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? His servants who have a hard heart are talking to Pharaoh who has a hard heart who is supposed to be God in the flesh amongst them. They're actually protesting deity in letting these people go. Does everybody see why the whole hard heart, I can't let the people go, is not just a little quick fix to here? We've got to think more about what's going on here. And notice the reasoning from within inside the kingdom about it. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, go, serve Yahweh your Elohim. Who are the ones that are going? Now, I don't know if you know this, but a guy named Shady McShaderson just came out at Pharaoh, right? He's going to say something shady. Now watch. You guys can go worship. By the way, who's going to go? Watch this. This is so like me, it's ridiculous. I'll obey, but not fully, God. Verse 9, Moses said, We shall go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, with our flocks and herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Everybody's going, Pharaoh, why do you ask? Look what he says here. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Thus, May Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Verse 11, not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve Yahweh, for this is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now you might say, man, that wording is kind of, kind of ambiguous, and you know what it is, but here's the idea. is essentially what it's saying is, if we're going, all of us are going. And Pharaoh says, you know what? You should leave everybody here but the men. Just let the men go. Why? So they'll do what? Come back. Come back. Get their wives. Get their kids. Get everything that they own. I have to ensure somehow that I've got my fingers on this situation. Is God happy with that? No. Partial obedience is full disobedience. A half sin is still what? It's sin. Praise the Lord we get that. So look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat every plant on the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and Yahweh directed the east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again, for they covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. The land was darkened. Look outside, guys. The land was darkened. All ground that you saw, black. Because there's so many locusts around. Every time you walk, crunch, 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 crunch. It's like your kid just got done eating in the living room. Not that I know that from experience. But (laughs) notice what it says here. Uh, For they covered the surface of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land, all the fruit of the trees, all that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron. And he said, I have sinned against Yahweh, your Elohim, and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. And make supplication to Yahweh, the Elo- your Elohim. Uh, he would remove death from me. And he went out from Pharaoh and he made supplication to Yahweh. Now here's the problem here. Number one, the gods that are involved in the situation. We probably heard of Seth, right? 
Seth is the god of war, of chaos, and of storms. He is sometimes depicted as a red-haired beast with cloven hooves and a pointy tail. Does that sound like anybody to you? Sounds like our good old dirty friend Satan, doesn't it? Actually, Satan doesn't look like that at all. That's the deviled ham guy. But anyway, uh, or a dog-like beast, or sometimes he's depicted as a serpent. This is the best pagans can do in conjuring gods. They came up with the deviled ham guy, okay? That's what they did. Anybody get that, the deviled ham guy? Everybody seen him on the, <laughs> that guy with the little pitchfork? Okay, just making sure everybody knows who we're talking about here. Like, he's crazy. What's he talking about? Now, locusts, in particular, desert locusts. Locust eggs can sit dormant for 20 years before they ever hatch. Did you know that? 20 years. And then they hatch, and they love to move in swarms. In fact, one calculation I found looking on National Geographic, yes, you can use that in order to find out things about this, right? Here's what I found out. The idea that a desert locust can span 460 square miles in a swarm, and they can contain between 40 and 80 million locusts within that one swarm. And in one day, they can eat 423 million pounds of plants. One day. They can eat their body weight in plants. This is the devastation. And notice that it keeps bringing up everything left by the hail, gone. Everything that you might have thought you could get some food or something from, no, no. I'm taking it out. You're going to have nothing because of disobedience. Let's move forward. We're running short on time. Verse 21, Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. Now watch this, pay attention. Even a darkness which may be felt. This wasn't just the light bulb went out. Because, here's how we know this, verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Imagine we just sit here, turn out all the lights, cover up all the windows best we can, and we're not going to move for three days. You think we get to know one another pretty quickly? That's going to be an interesting three days, isn't it? That's a Christian retreat you never want to go on again, right? <laughs> Jeremy talked me out of retreats permanently. <laughs> but think about it. No one moved. No, they didn't even move. They couldn't even light a fire. They couldn't even see the person next to them. It was darkness that could be felt. Think about it for a second. Put yourself there of how Yahweh's trying to get their attention. Of course, we know this God, right? Ra, probably the most familiar one we have, the sun God. He's actually believed to also be the creator of all things. And actually, it turns out that it's believed that whoever is Pharaoh that comes up in the line, Pharaoh is actually really Ra's son is who this is. But notice, the God of the sun, no light. Israel had no problem. Now, imagine in this plague that you're Israel. You've got light as much as you need in your land, but when you look out beyond the light, you can see nothing. Everybody see how crazy this is? It's, it's something unlike has ever been done by anyone ever. This is what sets Yahweh apart. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now Yahweh said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here 
completely. In other words, in fact, do me this, do me this favor real quick. Put your finger here. Turn back to chapter 6. Let's not forget a prediction that we saw that Yahweh said. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. It's not just letting them go, it's him screaming, Get out of here, I don't ever want to see you again. Now these were people that he just couldn't let go, right? These are people that he just... They've got to be here serving me. They're our financial resource. They're doing all of our work for us. They're serving us just great, and we'll beat them, and they die. We don't care. Notice now it's get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you ever is the idea. So notice, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people. In other words, there needs to be witnesses present for what's getting ready to happen because it's going to be so tragic. And each man ask of his neighbor, and each woman of her neighbor, the articles of silver and articles of gold. And we'll see next week when they leave, they actually plunder them completely. And Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, who had the hardened hearts, if you'll remember, and in the sight of the people. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. In other words, Yahweh shows no discrimination in this plague. Verse 7, but against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand. Everybody see that word understand? It means know. That you may know. How Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be a beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. In other words, Yahweh is resetting their calendar according to this event. Forget whatever January through December you knew before, whatever that was like in a Jewish calendar. Today is the first month. It's called the month of Abib. Verse 2, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Look down at verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 6. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh the same night. Uh, We don't need to really hit that. You can look at that. Verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods. Pause. Did you just see that? Did you just see what Yahweh said? This is going to be against all the gods. Not just their carved articles and not just the stuff they decided to paint on the wall. We're talking about the demonic entities that are behind these things, fueling these people towards perpetual unbelief. I am striking 
their gods. The last god struck in the death of the firstborn is Pharaoh himself. He cannot even perpetuate his own offspring. He is helpless. He has nothing to eat. He has no cows, no sheep, no horses. Everything is gone. He just has a lot of people looking to him for salvation, and he cannot provide it, and he can't even save the life of his child or any of the other children within his kingdom. Dead. Dead. Separated. He says here, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, here it is, pay attention. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Yahweh is painting a picture to give us a vivid definition of what it means to be saved. Death is coming. It is going to pass over you. If you're someone here this morning and you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you have two types of death that are coming. Physical death, which we will all experience unless the rapture takes place, but a spiritual death, what is an eternal separation from the presence of God forever. Why is that? Because it's exactly what we deserve without pardon. If I have no way to avoid such things, I am getting everything that I have merited in this life. Everything that I have worked for, all the wrong decisions I make, all the wrong ways that I think, everything that comes out of my mouth merits to this one point. I deserve nothing more than to be separated from the very one who created me, even though it breaks his heart to do it. He's just. He can't go back on his standards. He does not lax his standards. That's not grace. Grace is not laxing standards. Grace is finding another means in order to make it work so that the standard is met in perfect justice. And someone becomes the undeserved recipient of freedom. When you apply the blood, death passes over. Yahweh is the perfect judge. Why? He sets a standard but he's also the perfect deliverer because he provides the solution. Now, the beautiful thing is, as we look back upon this historical account in Egypt's history, of which death is going to pass over and kill children. Imagine that that next day. In fact, the text even says you could hear wailing all over the land. The children of Israel are safe. Why? Because they took a young male lamb and they sacrificed him. And they took his blood and they applied it. And because they applied it, get this, church, death could not touch them. 
Yahweh would have been a liar if it would have been other way. You see what I'm saying? His standards and his justice get met perfectly, but he provides a solution. Have you applied the blood? Now, we being the church, being privy to the New Testament, and I know that your prayer time in your closet every morning is, Lord, when's the preacher going to get to the New Testament? I know it is, (laughs) but it's okay. But the way we understand and how we apply the blood, do you realize that you have to get this to understand who Jesus is? When we read something like John looking off across the distance, he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And yet when we get with a new Christian, a brand new born again baby believer, we tell them, read the gospel of John. Where'd all these sheep come from? What's going on here? Can you see how someone who is infantile in the faith would look at this and go, I guess I'll figure it out later. Everybody see that? However, we start in Genesis and we walk through. It's crystal clear, isn't it? God says, take the blood of a lamb. A male, Jesus was a male. Young, Jesus young, 33, 34 years old. And sacrifice him unto me and then apply his blood. Church, how is the blood applied? By faith. Faith alone. It is a conviction that it's true. Everybody take your last page of your notes here. Because we've been talking about building this case to get to the New Testament. What have we seen so far? What is the case that has been built unto? I want to give you four things. Notice they got cute little dots there. Yahweh has been crystal clear about the specific surrounding salvation. He is progressively, as the Bible goes along, opening it up and revealing it to us so that we are without excuse. And here's the first thing. Number one, he alone will provide the solution and guarantee the victory. Everybody remember that? Right? I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your heel but you will what? Crush his head. That's exactly what happens at that moment on the cross is the crushing of the serpent's head, a death blow to where he is rendered powerless in the situation. Number two, he legally recognizes one as righteous simply by believing his word, right? And Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Number three, he alone provides the sacrifice necessary. Remember Isaac starts getting sweaty palms as they're getting closer to where they're going to sacrifice. He's like, okay, we got the wood, we got the fire, we got the knife, but we ain't got nothing to sacrifice. And the collar starts getting hot, doesn't it? Abraham doesn't waver. Son, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. God provides it. See, this is why our works play no part. If it did, we would be the providers of the sacrifice. I guarantee you, it would be an insufficient one. So Yahweh has to provide it so that it's provided in perfection. And then what happens? Death passes over all who have applied the blood. In light of Jesus becoming our lamb and paying for our sins, we apply the blood by faith, fully assured, fully assured, that death has passed over us and that we have been set free. Have you believed in Christ? Have you come to that moment 
Do you realize that anytime I'm trying to supply something to get acceptance by God, my fingerprints have soiled it so badly, it's disregarded. It's trash before him. Thank our God that he provided a perfect sacrifice for us. And the point he wanted to hit home with Israel is by applying the blood, you are saved from death. Does everybody see this? Physically delivered is what they were. Translate to us as no hell, no lake of fire. Praise God for that. Now, I'm not a big altar call guy. We're not going to sing 89 repetitions of just as I am. But I do think it's important to answer that question. Jesus Christ has taken on the penalty for our sin on himself and died. And he offers the blood. Have you applied the blood? Have you believed? If you do, guess what you have? Eternal life, forgiveness of sin. Praise God. You are spotless in his sight and because he provided the work and it's not contingent upon your work, you are fully assured that the work is sufficient. It gets the job done. If you want to talk about that, come see me. Come talk to me. Elders, raise your hand. Raise your hand, elders. Raise them up high. Let's see some pit stains. Good job, guys. You don't feel comfortable talking to me because I'm so brash and abrasive and all over the place? That's fine. Any one of these docile gentlemen will be able to take you under their wing and talk with you. But it's important that you know Christ. Do not walk out of these doors lost. Everybody hear me? Not that you can't find your car. Don't walk out of these doors the same way that you came in. Salvation is offered full and free anytime for any that will accept it. Have you applied the blood? Let's pray. Father, thank you for supplying the blood. Thank you for the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Thank you that you require nothing of us. It is by your grace that you offer it freely. We are undeserving, and yet you are in the business of forgiving sin. We're all going to die. We'll all meet death or we'll be scooped off of this earth in the rapture. But what is going to matter is what we did with the blood. If the blood is offered fully and freely to us, what have we done with it? Father, I pray that you provoke our hearts and our minds about people that we are associated with, affiliated with, related to, whatever it is, who we know have not applied the blood. Fill our hearts with a burden to share this wonderful truth with them, to let them know salvation has been bought. It has been paid for full and free. And then, Father, give us the words to say in telling them about our great God and Savior, Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.